organization. We want to support that. A lot of people, um, just as a quick side note, don't realize that slavery today is worse than it's ever been in human history, as far as we know. There are somewhere in the ballpark of 40 million slaves in the world today, more than there were during the time of the transatlantic slave trade. And so we as a church believe that that is one of the, the greatest injustices and evils humanity has ever conceived of, perhaps the greatest, and we want to be fighting against that. So with that said, who wants to run a half marathon with me in October? The way it works is like this. How many of you guys did this last year, by the way? I see at least one. Um, we, yeah, there we go. All right, Melissa. We want to see a ton of people do this. And here's the way it works. You sign up to join our team on the website, svccchurch.com run. You actually get a login that lets you see how much money you've raised. The website looks amazing. And um, you start training with us in June or July, depending on your experience level. And all through the time that you're training for this race, you fundraise. You send out letters that we have made for you guys. You do a bake sale, whatever creative idea you can think of to raise money. And the goal is for every runner to raise $100 for every mile that they'll do in this race. So $1,300, which seems like a lot, but last year we had many people on the team smash that goal and go way beyond it. So for those of you who right now are just thinking, I absolutely can't do that. Awesome. I'll donate, but I'm not going to do it. I just want you to know, truly, you can do this. We have a, uh, a training schedule that's designed for people of all experience levels. If you've never run at all, you can start with the plan that starts in June. You'll be walking for the first month. You'll kind of get yourself up, do some walking and running, alternating, and then runners will start in July. And in July, we'll be doing group runs on Saturdays. Truly, um, you, you might not necessarily end up with like a Boston qualifying finishing time or something, but if you do the schedule, you can absolutely do this. And the most important and powerful thing about it is that we get to fight human trafficking and we get to tell our loved ones who we send these letters to and who we talk to about donating the things that we as Christians care about. That, you know, Christianity, a lot of the time we get attention for what we're against, and, and some of that's very important as well, but it's awesome to be able to highlight what we're for, that we are for freedom, we are for justice, and we are for the freeing of slaves, the freeing of captives. That's part of our story. So I want to invite all of you into this. If you have questions, you're not sure, you can check out the website or you can talk to me, but I want to see a ton of people do this, and I want to see us raise a ton of money to battle human trafficking. So sound good? I only heard a few people say, yeah. There's some people who are like, it sounds good, and there's some people who are like, it sounds bad, but I'll do it anyway. And there are some people who are like, it just sounds bad. <laughs> Please consider taking part in this. Um, I did it last year. I'm going to do it again this year. Tracy Hill, many of you know, she's the one who, no pun intended, runs this event for us. And so uh, if you see her, you can, yeah, I, I like the kind of, oh, for that joke. <laughs> Um, but please consider participating in this. All right, so we've already talked about a lot of stuff before even starting our sermon today, so I'm going to be brief, I promise, but it's a really important thing we're going to be talking about for these next two weeks, today and, and next Sunday, and that's the sacraments. And sacraments are these kind of external activities that have spiritual meaning, that have spiritual value. And different Christian traditions have different ones that they do at different numbers. But um, the Protestant tradition, which we're a part of, has traditionally done two. And in first service, I made the mistake of asking what they were, like it was a quiz question, and then realized it says right there. So uh, who can tell me what the two sacraments that we practice at South Valley are? Very good. That's the second easiest question I'll ask today. And so today we're going to talk about baptism. Next week, Isaac will be sharing about communion. And these are, are hugely significant things. And I believe it's really important for us to talk about baptism because many of us have either a misunderstanding 
of what baptism is and what it means, or more likely, a, an under-understanding, an under-appreciation for what this is and the value of it. We say things like, well, baptism is um, an outward symbol of an inward reality. And that's true, but the way we typically say that, we're saying it more like it's just a symbol. It's just a, an outward symbol. And so what we're going to explore today is the incredible, rich, beautiful, and multi-layered picture that the Bible paints of all of these themes that come together in the act of baptism. So it's going to be like a, a brief and high-level flyover of some really important events in Scripture. And if you're not familiar with these parts of Scripture, just stay with me on the themes. Um, I, I, and I believe that it all comes together to, to paint an incredibly powerful picture of this thing that all Christians are called to do when they decide to follow Jesus. So if, you, if you've come to this church a long time, it won't surprise you at all where we're starting. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters beautiful image. These are the first two verses in the entire Bible, and it's the beginning of creation. And a lot of the time we get stuck debating some of what I consider to be secondary questions that we're trying to get Genesis to answer, and we miss some incredibly powerful things. We've talked about this before, but the fact that there's, there's one God who creates everything. And as the creation week goes on, you'll see God create things that other cultures of the time worshipped as gods, things like the sun and moon and stars. But for today, what I want us to focus on is what the pre-creation condition was when God comes in and begins to create. Because notice he says, the earth was without form and void. In Hebrew, tohu vavohu, it has these kind of connotations of, of wilderness, wasteland, and chaos. It's a picture of chaotic, disordered, uncreation. And the image is of waters. There's darkness over the face of the deep. These waters of chaos over which the Spirit of God is hovering or fluttering is an equally good and beautiful translation of that word. And into that situation, into that chaos, into those pre-creation waters, God speaks and he begins to speak order and goodness into that chaos. And one of the things he does on day three of creation is he creates dry land. It actually says he separates the waters from dry land. So into these waters of chaos, God creates good, safe, dry land on which he places humanity. Now, many of us are familiar with the story. Humanity goes south really quickly, right? Not literally, they don't literally go south, they figuratively go south. They go east, literally. But in Genesis chapter three, humanity chooses rebellion, they choose selfishness, and from that point there's this downward spiral of evil, depravity, and rebellion that leads to the high point at this point in the Bible story of human evil, and that's our next water story. Who can tell me what that might be? The flood, Noah and the great flood. This happens in Genesis chapter 6. It's an untold number of years later, and depravity and human evil and injustice has gotten so bad on earth that God calls back up those waters of chaos and disorder over the earth to destroy from the face of the earth all that lives, but not quite all, right? Now, this is an incredible verse. Some of what's happening here we miss in English, but it says, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep split open, your Bible will probably say something like burst forth, but a more literal word is split open, and that, that'll matter later. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So this is an image of uncreation. 
The act of creation that God does where he, he flutters over the chaotic pre-creation waters and spreads them out and creates dry land in the midst of them, that's undone in Genesis 6. But in the midst of that, God preserves a remnant of humanity. This is the story we're familiar with where Noah makes what? An archie, archie, and what does he make it out of? Gopher, barky, barky, thank you. <laughs> the Bible's not specific that he used barky, barky, but uh, it's probably true because it rhymes. It's funny, we're familiar with this story because of Sunday school, many of us, if you grew up in the church, and it's just, it's, to me, it's always been a funny story to do so often in Sunday school because there's this great apocalyptic judgment that takes place on the earth. But in the midst of that, this is the key, the chaotic water, waters of punishment for human evil and depravity come up, but God creates in the midst of that a way to shepherd his chosen remnant through that. So in the midst of the, the waters of chaos coming back over creation, there's an ark preserving a remnant. Fast forward again, another untold number of years, and there's a nation called Israel that became a nation in the land of Egypt. And in Egypt, they become slaves. They, they went there on good terms, but then 400 years passed. They grew into a massive, mighty, or potentially mighty nation. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, said, no, we gotta subjugate these people. We have to make them into slaves. So you get this incredible story that becomes kind of the, the cornerstone story of Jewish thought for the next 2,000 years or so, 1,500 years or so. And that's of the Exodus. God calls a man named Moses, and through him, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? This is another great Sunday school story, by the way. Pharaoh says, no. And so plague after plague gets unleashed on the Egyptians. And there's this incredible thing, this is totally a side note, but it's happening in the story where all of the plagues that God is enacting on Egypt because Pharaoh won't let the people go, all of them are designed to subjugate a different Egyptian god. And so, like, the, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. The Nile was a goddess. And so, the first plague is the Nile gets ruined. God is saying, I'm more powerful than the Nile. And you can trace all ten of these plagues and see that each one of them is God sort of dethroning a god who was part of the most powerful pantheon in the world at the time. If you asked anyone at that time in human history, who, what nation has the best gods? Everyone's going to say Egypt. Anyway, that's a side note. I just think that's really cool. Now, at the end of that, Pharaoh finally says, all right, get out of here, I'm done, go. So the people of Israel depart. They leave Egypt, and as they're marching towards the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he sends an army after Israel. And he says, we're gonna go get our slaves back. So he sends 600 chariots after them. And the picture that's painted at this point is absolutely terrifying. You have Israel encamped in front of the Red Sea, this uncrossable barrier, and again, in the Bible already, but even outside of the Bible, just in ancient Near Eastern thought, the ocean means chaos, terror, disorder, mystery. We're scared of it. We don't go near it. It represents this chaotic evil that humanity can't manage. So they're trapped between that and the oncoming armies of Pharaoh behind them. So they cry out to God, and God says something incredible to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. A couple things, again, happening in Hebrew that we miss in English. He says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it. Same exact word that happens in the flood story. 
These are touchstones that the biblical authors tend to put in to get you to kind of remember old things. But here, the image has been flipped. Before, it's the splitting open of those chaos waters. Now God is inverting that image, and through Moses, he is splitting the waters again, but this time to create a way for Israel so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land, which is the same exact Hebrew word for what God created on the third day of creation in Genesis 1. So again, we have these, this image of these chaotic waters that are threatening humanity, and God creates a way. It's like the ark all over again. Many of you are familiar with the story. Um, the people of Israel cross through on dry land, and as the people of Egypt, the Egyptian army, follows them in, and as soon as the Israelites are out, what happens? I know it's too long of a sentence to shout out, huh? The waters close back in on Pharaoh's armies. Again, recalling flood imagery, that there is this judgment and they're crushed beneath the waters of chaos. People of Israel go off to wander in the wilderness and while they're there, Moses dies and he is succeeded by who? Anybody know who Moses' successor is? Joshua. And so Joshua, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, is, is going to bring the people of Israel into the promised land finally, where they should have gone years and years ago, but they were disobedient. That's a story for another time. And they camp again in front of uncrossable waters. People of Israel stop in front of the Jordan River, and, there, and on the other side of that river is the land that God promised to give to his people. And God appears to Joshua and tells him something incredible. He tells him what he's going to do, and he tells him why he's going to do it. He says, all right, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, send the priests forward with the Ark of the Covenant, which is this, this symbolic representation of the presence of God with Israel, this place where God's presence was in an especially immediate way. He says, the minute the priest's feet bearing the Ark of the Covenant touch the river, the minute they touch the water, I'm going to cause the water to stand up in a heap upstream from you, and you guys will walk across on dry ground. And he says, I'm going to do this so that the people will know that I'm with you the way I was with Moses. So it's, it's in the text. It's explicitly a recapitulation of that Red Sea crossing. We're going to do it again so that, God's, so that you, Israel knows, even though Moses is dead, I'm still God and I'm still doing what I'm doing. And so the next day they do that. And it's exactly what happens. And it's beautiful because what they do, it's this amazing image. The priests with the ark step foot in the river and the water piles up upstream from them. That's, the, that's what it says in the text. And then they walk in and the people bearing the ark stand in the middle of the river the whole time while the rest of Israel crosses over. And then finally, when the last person is crossed, the priests with the ark come out of the river and the water starts flowing again. So once again, you have this, this chaotic water as a barrier between God's people and where they're going to go, and God splits it, creates a safe path of passage through those chaotic waters of judgment and, and evil and sends them through safely. Now, there are, there are so many more examples of this that I wish we could do. I wish we could talk about um, Jonah, who's thrown into chaotic waters and preserved for three days in the belly of a fish, or the words of prophet after prophet, or of Job, who, who talk about God's power over the waters of chaos. But I want to jump to the New Testament, because all of a sudden, all of these themes in, in the writings of the New Testament get picked up and sort of turned and twisted to something new, and something new that applies to every single one of us. This is Mark 1, very first chapter of what is probably the very first gospel, the first story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mark writes this, In those days, 
Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's another gospel account where, where John sort of tries to talk Jesus out of it. He's like, why are you getting baptized? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let's do it to fulfill all righteousness. It's really interesting because what John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's for Israelites who are coming and saying, I'm done doing what I was doing and I'm going to do something different. Now, Jesus does not have to do that right? Jesus has nothing to repent of, but he goes out of his way to fulfill all righteousness and identifies himself with penitent, repentant Israel. So his cousin John baptizes him, and it says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus goes to the Jordan, the very river where this famous story from Israel's past took place. And he goes down into the water, and when he comes back up, God's voice speaks out over the water again. It says, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. After this, by the way, Jesus goes out into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. Does that sound familiar? Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes out and is tempted for 40 days. First human being in history to be tempted and not give in. After this, his, his ministry goes on with these stories and stories that the Apostle John says would fill countless infinite books if we wrote them all down. And at the end of that story, he dies. Gives his life up willingly on a Roman cross and is buried for three days and then resurrected. And the New Testament authors after that event, especially Peter and Paul, do some incredible things connecting baptism, all of these Old Testament concepts, and the death and resurrection of Jesus for Christians. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul throws this new idea into this really rich biblical imagery of, of water and safe passage through it and says, what happens in baptism is that Christians are identifying themselves in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What is it that makes it so that we can continue in life without sin, with becoming increasingly more and more like Jesus? What is it that changes us? Well, your old self dies with Jesus, symbolized by passing down into the water and then you come up resurrected, like Jesus. Now, it's an, it's an incredibly powerful image. There's one in 1 Peter that actually is even more direct in its connection to the Old Testament. We're, do, we're talking about 1 Peter later this year, so I don't want to use it today, but he, he actually directly compares it to Noah. But all of the pieces are there. Jesus, in his death, becomes the person who allows the waters of chaos to close in on him, like the flood, like the Egyptians. He takes the brunt of that so that he can become, in his resurrection, the ark, the dry path through the Red Sea, the dry path through the Jordan River, this way for us to go from chaos, disorder, and death into new life. So the baptized go down, identifying with the death of Jesus, and come back up as participants in his new life. Notice, by the way, Paul's talking to Christians, and he doesn't say, hey, if you've been baptized. He says, those of us, all of us who have been baptized. 
the assumption here is that Christians are baptized. And that I could show you verse after verse like this where Paul goes, we who have been baptized, us baptized people. Peter says it, John says it, Paul says it. The assumption is that Christians are baptized. The most dramatic example is actually from the mouth of Jesus. At the end of Mark's gospel, or Matthew's gospel rather, he gives the great commission and he says, go therefore to all nations and make disciples doing what? Baptizing them. Christians get baptized when they decide to follow Jesus. And the reason I'm, I'm highlighting that, the other example, Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Acts 2. By the way, today is Pentecost. I don't know if you know that. I wish we had time to talk about it. Um, Acts 2, Peter gives this incredible sermon, and it says that the people who hear him are cut to the heart, and they ask, brothers, what must we do to be saved? What does he say? Repent and be baptized. It's an assumption. It's a package deal. Here's the problem. There are um, a ton of Christians who aren't baptized for a huge variety of reasons, and if that's you today, um, I want to just say up front, please don't bring shame or guilt to this. That's the opposite of what we want to do today. We want to get everybody understanding what this is so that we all do it. But if you haven't been baptized for any of the reasons I'm about to say, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's the opposite of what I want. But I think there's three kind of big primary like reasons or categories for reasons why people don't get baptized. And the first one is just simple procrastination. There could be, I mean, how many of you guys in college or high school procrastinated? Every hand should go up except for those of you who are like, really on the ball, like, no, I didn't. I had my planner. I did my homework a week in advance. Shame on you if you did that. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. Shame on the rest of us. But for a huge variety of reasons, Christians just put it off. And sometimes it's because, um, you know, there's like a class that we have. It's like laziness. Like, there's a class I have to go to that morning if I get baptized and I don't really want to be at church that early. Sometimes it's you're waiting for a special particular occasion, like where a baptism is going to happen at, at a certain location or on a special day. There are people who, like, want to go get baptized in the Jordan River the way that Jesus did. And I would just encourage you, if that's you, I, I would gently suggest that you're misunderstanding what baptism is for. It doesn't matter where it happens. Philip, an early evangelist in the book of Acts, um, preaches the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch and they're driving in a chariot and they see some water and he goes, here's some water, let's do it right here. And Philip's like, all right, let's do it. And he baptizes him right there. If you're a Christian, you get baptized. That's the step. It's a package deal. So I would just encourage you, don't put it off. The other reason that, pe that a lot of Christians don't get baptized is because of this weird like two-sided shame pride thing. And this is especially if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've never been baptized, and now you're like, well, if I go get baptized on a Sunday, everybody's going to see me and be like, wait a second, hasn't Sam been like a Christian for forever? He's been at this church for a long Why is he getting baptized today? And I can relate to that um, because this is going to seem like a weird example, but I think it connects. I didn't see Braveheart until last year. I repent and apologize. Um, <laughs> if you're, if you're uh, anyone in this world, but especially if you're a young man, Braveheart is like, right, Mike? Are you ashamed of me right now? Be honest. Okay, thank you. Um, it's, that's the movie. Like, everybody loves that movie. And I had not seen it. Until, I, wa I finally watched it last year. I went to my friend Steven and in shame asked him if I could borrow it because I'd never seen it. Because for my whole life, I'd be with my friends and people would be like, oh, it's like in Braveheart when blah, blah. And I'd be like, yeah, go on. I totally know too. Um, and I like, obviously that's a silly example, but that feeling of like not wanting to be outed as somebody who hasn't been baptized, I think for either shame or pride reasons holds people back. And again, 
I don't want that to ever be something that stops you. First of all, people are not going to judge you. People are gonna be overjoyed to see you be baptized. It's such a beautiful thing. We love baptisms here. And so if that's you, man, um, don't let that be a barrier to stop you from doing what's commanded and expected in the New Testament. And then finally, and this is probably the most crucial one, people don't get baptized for those reasons because of this one, which is that they misunderstand what it's for. Now, um, other Christian traditions have put such a huge emphasis on baptism, making it like basically something you have to do to be saved, that um, Protestants have reacted over historically by saying, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism isn't the thing that saves you, so nobody says this, but people hear this, so don't worry about it. And I wanna be crystal clear so that no one goes away and calls me a heretic today. <laughs> baptism does not save you. It doesn't. We're convinced that the way the Bible describes salvation, baptism is not the thing that saves you. What saves you is the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ and your faith in him. But here's the thing. Those who have received that, those who follow Jesus, they're called to do a number of things. One of them is confession, right? Repent and be baptized. These are these responses that are just assumed. They're built in. And so I think the question that a lot of people ask, you know, does baptism save you? Do I need it to be saved? It's, it's kind of a ridiculous question. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there's, there's two kinds of symbolism. Like I said earlier, when we say baptism is like a symbol of something, and we say it as if we're saying like, well, it's just a symbol, you know what I mean? There's two kinds of symbols. Here's my first example. That's a heart emoji. Everybody recognizes this? How many of you have sent this to someone before? How many of you guys have like had your spouse be like, I'm bringing El Gruense home, and you just send a heart emoji back? Only me? <laughs> I'm looking at Trista again. <laughs> heart, eyes, a heart. A heart emoji is a symbol, and, and follow me on this. It's a symbolic representation of an idea. In this case, it's actually a symbolic representation of a word. This is a symbol that represents the word love, right? So you could say, I heart New York, I heart whatever, I heart El Gruense. If they made those shirts, I would buy one tomorrow. It means love in that it represents that word, that idea. Compare that to an engagement. Somebody asked me earlier if that was a picture of me before having a beard. No, it's not. Um, it's just another guy with great choice in hairstyle. Um, compare a heart emoji to an engagement. I remember the day I asked my wife to marry me. We were at Point Lobos. Um, this beautiful, rocky, coastal area. And we hiked out on a path. I sang her a song, and I was praying to the Lord that no one else would come hiking up the same path. And I got on one knee and, and gave her a ring and asked her to marry me. That is a symbolic action that is itself an act of love. Do you see the difference? A heart emoji symbolizes the idea of love. A wedding proposal is a symbolic act of of love itself. And I would suggest to you guys today that baptism is more like an engagement than it is like a heart emoji. It's a symbol, 
but man is it a powerful symbol. It's a symbol that is in, in, in its own way like a full body confession. It's like you are saying with your entire self, I need you, God. I need my old self to die. I need to go under these waters with you so that I can come up into new life with you. I need to be identified in you. I need you to be the ark that carries me through the storm. I need you to be the path through the Red Sea, the path through the Jordan River. I need that. And so I'm going to do this symbolic act of repentance, of love, of submission to Jesus. And man, does it save you? I don't know. Does a ring make you married? This is a ridiculous question. Of course a ring isn't the thing that makes me married. But it sure means something when you're wearing one and when you're not. You know what I mean? Baptism is saying with your entire body, I need someone to do something for me that I cannot do for myself. It's a symbolic act. It's not just a symbol. And it's incredibly powerful. So, in many ways, this is like the world's simplest sermon application in the history of preaching. (laughs) If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Now, I want to break it down a little bit. It's not quite that simple. Um, If you're not a Christian and you're just here checking Christianity out, you want to learn what it is we believe, um, man, understand that when we do these baptisms and you see people like me crying the whole time, it's not just because this is like a heart emoji of being a Christian. It's because we're watching someone enact what it means to, to die to your old self and come alive in Jesus. So please, you are more than welcome here if you're not a Christian. Continue checking this stuff out, but I hope you understand that these symbols that we have are more than just little representations of ideas. They're incredibly powerful and meaningful. And um, I would just encourage you to take seriously the claims of Jesus. We live in a world that is filled with those chaotic waters. You know what I mean? Like, look look at the news for a minute and ask, is the world chaotic or is it clean and nice and easy? Is it dry land or is it chaos water? And if we're really honest with ourselves, man, we realize we contribute to that, that chaos more than we sometimes like to admit. Now, if, you, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, then the application really is that simple. I would urge you to be baptized. Don't put it off. Don't wait till it's at a particular place. Don't wait till it's at a particular time. Sign up and we will baptize you this year. We're gonna do baptisms. Um, I actually don't even know the date, but it's coming up. And I want you to put to action the knowledge that you need to do this. Get the connect card from the seat in front of you. Write your name, some way to get a hold of you and that you want to be baptized. You can sign, I think there's a sign-up sheet at the connect booth. Um, but, but sign up to do this. Don't let any of those reasons we talked about hold you back from doing this thing that the New Testament is so crystal clear in its expectation that Christians do it. And don't miss out on this incredibly beautiful symbolic act that God has created for us to identify with Jesus. Um, finally, if you're a Christian and you have been baptized, man, do what I did this week when I was looking at this stuff and just glory in the riches of God's grace. And what a beautiful symbol that Jesus died for us. He goes down into those waters, but they couldn't hold him. And so he came bursting out again, out of death, and in doing that becomes the ark, the path through the sea. And if you're with Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you follow him, man, you get to participate in that. 
So if you've been baptized, I hope that today and this week you'll reflect on that image, you'll reflect on that moment and remember the beauty of what that means. So get baptized, guys. That's this whole sermon. I could have done it in 30 seconds. Sorry for all of the extra stuff. Get baptized. Um, I talked about, I joked about this in first service, but Kevin Kersenev, one of the pastors here, he's preaching in Hollister this morning. Um, he like wants to get baptized every time we do baptisms. And he's like so sad because he knows that theologically he shouldn't do that. But he's like, man, I want to get in there. It's so exciting. It's so awesome. That's how I hope you feel about baptism as a Christian. That when you see someone else do it, you just go like, oh my gosh, look at what we believe. That because of Jesus, we can be brought into new life with him. What a beautiful thing. There's a path through the ocean. There's an ark in the midst of this horrible storm that's raging all around us. It's Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. And if you have questions, if, if, you're, if you've got concerns, if, if there's something that you want to talk about related to baptism, talk to me. Um, if you have an issue with something I said, talk to Greg. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to one of the prayer counselors who I'm actually going to go ahead and invite forward right now. Um, we would love to see believers get baptized this year. So sign up and let's do this. And let's pray and thank God for what he's done for us. Father, man, what an image. What a symbol that we can go down into death that our old self, the self that's broken, the self that can't choose you, the self that will always do the wrong thing, that will always rebel, that that self can die. And that because of what you've done on our behalf, because of your willingness to take the punishment, to bear the curse for us, that we can come out of that water into new life. And Lord, we know that, that it is your grace, it is your finished work at the cross that saves us. But I just ask you, Lord, that every single one of us who believes in you would have a strong desire to see that symbol enacted in our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for creating a way for us. And I pray that between now and when you come back, and uh, as Revelation says, there's no more sea, there's no more chaos, that between now and when that happens, Lord, I pray that you would help your church to represent a world of dry land, a world of safety, a world of an ark floating along the top, God, I pray that you would help us to do that, to show the world that, that that is there, that is real. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.